Are you curious about what it takes to build a group practice? Or maybe you're already a few practices in and you want to learn what you need to do to ensure your success. Make a point to join us in Fort Lauderdale on March 30th through April 1st for our pinnacle event called Scaling from Clinician to CEO. This event is built to bring you the in-depth educational resources to help you create success at this next phase of your journey. Click on the link in the show notes to learn more about the event itself and to see an overview of the agenda. We're limiting the event to 75 people and we expect it to sell out. So please register soon. We hope to see you in Fort Lauderdale on March 30th for Scaling from Clinician to CEO. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everyone to episode number 36 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, why emerging groups hit the debt funding wall. I know you're going to find this episode to be a note-taking one, so you wanna get your pad and pen ready my partner, DeWalker Sinhai, is going to be joining me behind the microphone. We're going to talk lending. We're going to talk borrowing. We're going to talk all kinds of important banking concepts. And we're going to try to prep you so that you and your group don't hit the debt funding wall. Brew another cup of that wonderful meal of coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Once again, welcome everybody to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports. I'm joined today by my partner, DeWalker Sinha. DeWalker, do you want to say hello to everyone? Uh, morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are listening to us. Uh, thanks for having me, Perrin. <laughs> well, we have a global audience, uh, judging from some of the uh, IP addresses on downloads. So I'm never sure who's downloading what from where or what time it is, but we're spanning the globe as uh, the wide world of sports used to, to say. The Walker today is a uh, is going to be um, an episode around a topic that we have been talking about for, for multiple years, and we call it the debt funding wall. And it is something that every entrepreneurial dentist is going to encounter at some point when they try to use what we call rate and term lenders to scale their group practice. Um, and we teased this in a prior episode. We've talked about it on multiple occasions before, but it is absolutely mission critical uh, if you're gonna have a reliable um, funding mechanism to facilitate your growth strategy, especially if you're gonna grow the business at, at any um, size and speed, I would say, um, of deploying those debt funds. So. Today is, is once again about credit and lending and trying to um, allow people to make some decisions that don't get them into problems 
down the road as it relates to uh, their lending relationships. Suffice to say, we see a lot of clients who come to us with multiple loans from multiple banks on multiple practices that have multiple different structures, different rates, different prepayment penalties. And, and frankly, it's a mess to try to unwind some of it. And these are, are businesses that, that arguably have not created the financial returns to unlock more lending. We're going to talk a little bit more about things like equity on balance sheet. Um, but why don't we just sort of take it from the top here about you know your past history and, and our look to things from the clients we work with and some of what we see in terms of how people get into this you know, this bowl of spaghetti, I like to say, that that is subordinated debt with multiple practices and multiple lenders. Can you hit some of the highlights of that on on how people kind of find themselves in that predicament? Uh, yeah. So I, I mean, I think uh, going back to our previous uh, episode, if people might go to a traditional, you know, their bank number one that financed their first or <clears throat> first two or three practices and uh, over time, start to see some level of reservation uh, from that, um, and or even you know as they're going to, you know, finance practice more with Bank A, then they talk to a practice transitions firm or a distribution firm. They recommend lender number two, and they go to lender number two just path of least resistance because it seems like a new lender, more open to doing things. And I think you know what I would caution every you know audience member to do is to to kind of keep going to different banks just because that's who is the path of least resistance and or that's who's being recommended at that time. Um, I, I think the, the the holistic view of just kind of looking at their business plan and having that conversation, that tough conversation with their current lender is more important to make sure they align with with the long-term vision and and you know which is what is the house you're looking to build, you know, uh, what's the vision look like and you know, and even if they're going to switch banks to bank number two because that's who their distributor or the transitions firm recommended, making sure that bank number two is in line with that vision uh, that is the three to five year vision. So I think you know many you know of our audience members end up with multiple banks because either bank one number one is not lending to them or they got introduced to a new bank uh, from whoever they were engaging that transaction with, and I think. Uh, uh, it's more common than not, but I think the easy, the, the right solution would be as you're, you know, you know, start looking at the lender or the lending partner that's going to be with you for the next five to 10 years. Um, you know, refinancing transactions is very expensive in the form of prepayment penalties. Um, and, and more importantly, as we go into, you know, the Fed's just announced that there's probably going to be, I think, a few rate adjustments over the next uh, 12 to 24 months. You know, if you're refinancing and you know took a loan out now with the wrong lender, and then in a year down the road or two years down the road, you're refinancing to the right lender, quote unquote. Uh, um, I, I think your 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 the trend the decision becomes very expensive in the fact that one you know one could argue for the prepayment penalty. Sure, there's you know one to five percent prepayment penalty depending on the institution. But the bigger, the more expensive ends up being that you're refinancing from a pricing structure of 2021, where rates were an all-time low, refinancing an entire relationship on top of the prepayment at a higher cost of capital in 2022, 2023, 2024, whatever that undefined period is. Um, and I think 
you know, it's important to kind of think through those decision factors early in the process and start looking at a at a, at a holistic uh, position today. And I think that, you know, we can go into accountability aspects on both sides and how people are creating equity, the equity and balance sheet for the right lender and, and how that ongoing relationship can be in a, in a credit facility, as we talked about in a previous podcast. Yeah, I, I think that, um, uh, I think we also mentioned on a, a prior podcast, and I've probably mentioned it on multiple ones that, you know, the banking relationship, if done correctly, is something that you should be able to set it and forget it. You know, it, it ought to be something that you can live with um, as long as you continue to perform and as long as the bank continues to perform, you ought to be able to live with it for a, a long, long time. And, and that's the ideal scenario to, to have is, is it's a true relationship. It's a business to business relationship. Uh, and it's one that um, really facilitates the future growth of the business. Um, when we talk about prepayment penalties uh, and breakup fees and costs and that kind of stuff, I mean, those are legitimate. That's the way the bank you know, offsets their costs for underwriting the, the loan itself if you're not carrying it to term. So there's, there's nothing inherently dishonest in any way about a prepayment penalty. A bank has every right to make money just like any other business does. And, you know, they they make money on the interest of the loan when you borrowing it. And if you don't care, if you don't carry it to term and, and pay all the interest and the bank has to recoup some of their costs. That being said, it's usually better in the earlier stages to to negotiate away as much of the prepayment penalty as possible, even if it means a higher interest rate. You want the, the flexibility to leave them if they're not the right uh, lender. So, you know, can can you talk a little bit about um, the costs involved with with loans and and you know, kind of how banks underwrite and, and make money around that aspect? And specifically, maybe some of the covenant structures around subordinated debt, because I think this is this is one that all too often people don't know either the cost of compliance, um, financial compliance, meaning, or the the uh, some of the covenant structures, the loans, and and that um, can get people into a world of hurt pretty quickly if the bank chooses to execute on it. Uh, sure. So I think I think uh, as far as uh, you know, cost of underwriting, you know, for institutions, depending on if they are securitizing or not securitizing, I think those aspects tend to change their capital structure. And for for audience members that don't understand securitization, let me just kind of give you a thirty thousand or fifty thousand feet level. Um, so we might have heard the word securitization. Oh, or uh, uh, during the 2008-2009 economic downturn where mortgage-backed securities, quote-unquote, had defaulted. And that the way that works is you know, a lending institution, it could be any asset pool. It could be auto loans, could be equipment loans, could be you know, healthcare practice loans. Um, they are pulled into a portfolio um, and they're sold in the secondary market. And there's investors out there that'll buy it at a... At a uh, and, and expect some kind of a yield during the term of that transaction. So, um, you know, for example, you know, I'm, you know, as a lender, we're offering a rate of five percent, and the secondary market is giving me a yield of three percent or three and a half percent. There's a spread that the institution makes money on. So, um, but there's also a commitment to carrying the term in it. And I'm trying to go into the back end of you know, securitization and how that may work. 
that's one aspect of of carrying costs. There's other products called swap rate products, or you might hear yield maintenance products, uh, which are somewhat tied to securitization in the product. So, so if you see terms out there that say swap rate or yield maintenance, um, they may, and I'm not saying they must, but they may have some um, uh, cost structure tied to securitization. They tend to, uh, that is not an absolute must. Um, second, uh, lastly, I mean, I think the other aspects of, of uh, underwriting structure could be their sales team members um, that they have get paid commission on, um, uh, you know, in, internal operations people. So on an average, a bank may take an underwriting cost of a transaction of at least 2% uh, on it, independent of all the other verticals out there. So you'll see banks typically have minimum in their first year have a 3% penalty. Some may have, a has, have as high as 5%. And what they're trying to do is really offset their initial uh, underwriting structure. And you'll see some kind of a, um, a, a ladder going down where it might be 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 3, 2, 1. And that's because over time, as they uh, realize interest, their, 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 their structure that they need to, the cost they need to recover becomes less and less over time. But there's still always some kind of an outstanding cost structure depending on whenever the client pays off. So these are some costs that a bank's trying to underwrite and they're trying to make sure. And, and to your point, these are reasonable costs that a bank may ask for. But I think from a borrower's lens, you you know, you want to be understanding of that, but at the same time, make sure that that lender is, is the right lender for you long term. So I think articulating your business plan, your vision long term with not just the salesperson, but the credit officer, if you have a call with the credit underwriter, is very important to make sure that the credit officer understands that, you know, where your vision will be and that they are connected to your business plan. Uh, because, you know, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, um, two things that will impact a business growth is going to be the number one thing is going to be human capital. And the number two is going to be financial capital. I mean, I think those are uh, probably prevalent in any business industry. All right. So this is a really good transition kind of point now to be able to talk through um, not just the way banks make decisions and some some you know behind the curtain type look at at lending decisions and things like that, but also when we start talking about um, maintaining the borrowing window or keeping the window open to access more committed funds going forward. Um, a lot of that is dependent upon successfully operating the business. So it's not just a matter of going out and borrowing a ton of money to buy a lot of practices. You've heard us talk about um, after you acquire a practice, what are the top two or three things you're going to do to improve the revenue line or the top two or three things you're going to do to uh, decrease the cost structure of the business um, things like same store sales and increasing EBITDA margins and all that other kind of stuff that we talked about in a growth podcast. The reason that that's so critically important is to start to build equity on balance sheet. And, and here's where the impact of equity on balance sheet really matters in terms of the lending relationship. If you want to pick it up from here and, and run with it and, and sort of unpack the the creating equity on balance sheet concept for our audience. Uh, sure, I, I think um, so. When, when you know, we may look at um, our current lender, and you know, 
say, okay, maybe they're not the right lender and that there could be some validity to it because there might be limitations in the business unit um, within the bank. And I say business unit because you might be working with a you know, top 100 bank by asset size and say, well, why could they not lend me 15 million, 50 million, 100 million at some point? Um, and sometimes business units communicate to other business units. Sometimes there's a gap between business units within a bank. Um, I mean, I definitely experienced that as working within within the banking industry for 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 several years, and we see that from from our lens as a third party, where one side of the business unit of a bank may not necessarily communicate to the other, and the credit policies from one business unit don't translate holistically into the bank and other business unit. So there seems to be disconnects uh, within business verticals. Um, uh, so so that's that's there. So. But I think when you kind of go into the ownership, we kind of put a lot of focus on ownership and we focus, put a focus on ownership from a lending institution. And we talk a lot about having the right lending partner because we want to make sure there's ownership on the lender side. There's definitely significant ownership on the doctor side or our principal side that we're providing capital to. So if, if you're going out there and we see this very often and you know, so there are some clients that come to us for capital raise solutions, we go through the process understand the economics in the business. And we may go to them and say, hey, either we can't help you, okay? Which there are some times where we upfront will tell you we cannot help you. And if we cannot help you, we'll come to you and say, okay, we can't help you today, but you know, should go through our consulting process and see if we can make some operational efficiencies in the business to get you to a point where we can get you back to lending. Uh, so there, there is always a path forward or we try to provide a path forward um, in that process. But I think the the process comes into play is you know, how do you create equity and balance sheet? So let's say hypothetically you have three practices and the revenues are around $6 million. You have you know, $2 million with you know, bank A. And let's say your EBITDA is a um, you know, million dollars. So in, essentially in that case, you would be about two times leverage ratio. Um, and you would, in that million dollars EBITDA, one could argue you have three to four million dollars in lendable equity available, which is three to four times the EBITDA. And if you have two million dollars outstanding, you probably have another one million to two million dollars in growth capital for some of our middle market lenders uh, because they, view, they would view it as a leverage ratio. I think where it becomes uh, challenging is if you go do a de novo and you borrow 500, 600,000 to a de novo, and if you cannot get that practice to a million dollars of gross revenue with $150,000 in EBITDA at the end of year one. That's a that's a process issue and a people issue and a patient flow issue. So we on our consulting side, you know, when, when clients are working with ADA, that's okay, is it a people process or patient flow issue? And and in our consulting side, that entire process focuses on those three aspects uh, and f- figuring out, you know, uh, which issues are underlying issues. Um, so if you're gonna do de novo, borrow five hundred to six hundred thousand, you need to get to about a million dollars of revenue, 115 EBITDA. And 115 EBITDA times four gets you to that $600,000. So you essentially break net equity zero. So you continue to have lendable, uh, you haven't used up negative lendable equity in the business. Um, it, it gets exacerbated on an acquisition because if you're buying an acquisition, you know you might be buying a million dollar revenue practice. The transition broker tells you, a transition firm tells you, practice is selling for 80% of revenue or 100% of revenue. And you look at that business, and it's grossing $100,000 in EBITDA because the owner doctors had employees, the selling owner doctors had employees for 25 years and they've got their 3 to 5% raise for the last 25 years. And these are very common issues. I'm not there to agree or disagree with those issues. 
just telling you when people buy practices, they tend to buy practices. If you're buying practices at 80 to 100% of revenue from a selling doctor, if that practice does not have an EBITDA of 25%, that's not owner cash flow. A lot of brokers do owner cash flows. But if that true EBITDA is not 20 to 25%, you're probably buying a business for six to eight times EBITDA. Uh, and that becomes very expensive. And that's okay to acquire. And a bank will tell you, hey, we're okay providing this facility. But what you're doing is you're using up lendable equity. And if you keep doing that, uh, there's a way you can you know, start handing your lending wall within that acquisition cycle. Um, and I think that's as important to consider as a de novo. The same principles apply because, you know, if you had a million dollars in EBITDA, two million dollars lendable ratio, and you buy the third uh, or, or you know fourth practice for a million dollars, you go from, you know, six million dollars to seven million dollars in revenue, and the seventh million dollars in revenue is a million dollar loan. So you went from a million, uh, two million to three million dollars in EBITDA. Uh, or in lendable, uh, lendable revenue, but you only went to million two in EBITDA, you're starting to get to that three times EBITDA. You might be able to do another practice, but at that point, you're capped out. So it's very important to understand how you're buying practices, just as important as it's buying. It's uh, important to think about how to do de novos. A lot of people or audience members and our past clients, current clients, think about, okay, if I buy an existing cash flow practice, I should be in a better position than doing de novo. I would not necessarily agree with that statement. Sometimes a de novo is better than an acquisition. And sometimes an acquisition is better than a de novo. It really comes down to, you know, post de novo, post acquisition. Can you create equity on balance sheet on that one singular transaction within 12 months? And what is your historical record? It's not a desire issue. What is your historical record? And if you don't have that historical record, you need to be slow in that next acquisition. Take that acquisition, still okay. If you still want to do the 80 to 100% revenue, do it. But build up that success ratio with that practice first. Get it to that 20 to 25%. Reduce your leverage ratio under four times on that one acquisition within 12 months before you go to the next practice. And that may seem you know, like a very slow process to a lot of our entrepreneurs, but that's a very disciplined process on their side. And I think they can show a disciplined process when they're acquiring a practice and doing a de novo, I think a majority of the lenders we work with are going to be pretty excited about working with that operator. Yeah, I, you you hit on so many key points there that's probably worth it for the audience to go back and rewind the tape, so to speak, and and listen to that that five minutes worth because there was a lot in there. But I think a lot of it comes back to some central points here. Um, and, and you, we really can't impress this upon the audience enough. Um, for one, you never buy a business to simply maintain it. You, you always buy a business to improve it and improve it can be revenue generation, cost containment, or some type of margin expansion. And, and that helps to unlock more equity on balance sheet and keep the, the lending window open. The other piece to this is that no matter how many times we say it and how many times we illustrate it uh, in webinars, presentations, or otherwise, you have to have a fundamental understanding of EBITDA if you're going to build a group. And everybody thinks that, well, you know, EBITDA is the valuation metric, and that's what I'm going to get paid if I ever sell the business. Well, that's true. But until you get to the point where you're going to sell the business, that valuation multiple doesn't really mean as much. The multiple that means a lot 
is the funded debt to EBITDA ratio that a bank uses to, to continue making lending decisions for you or not. And to DeWalker's point that if you're buying businesses and you can't improve them and you're paying high EBITDA multiples because you're in a competitive environment or, or you know, high cost area or something like that, you can end up running out of rope in a hurry. And what exacerbates that is really your inability to unlock future value uh, and, and create equity on balance sheet. It's okay to overpay for a, a practice if you're going to acquire it as a competitive scenario, but only if you're able to create future value and more equity on balance sheet. What you cannot do is overpay as a multiple of EBITDA and then fail to improve the business. Um, that, that has a limited shelf life. We know of a handful of people who have, um, I don't want to say executor in that strategy, but have built businesses like that, and they're barely generating enough cash flow to, to support the debt service of the business. Frankly, it's a, it's a really large house of cards. I wouldn't want to live that way, and I hope that none of our clients would find themselves in, in that predicament, but it's something that we try to ascertain very early on. So this is, um, you know, the debt funding wall is, is a real phenomenon in, in our world. And I think from the last episode to this episode uh, and a couple of episodes to come, hopefully we're starting to create uh, a little bit of clarity for um, for our clients in terms of, you know, how to navigate the banking waters and, and really trying to find the right lender for them and make sure that they have the right relationship in place that they can live with for a while. DeWalker, this has been a um, a great tour de force once again on on the episode. Any any concluding thoughts or comments from your end um, before we wrap up the show today? Um, no, just I think just the key theme would be out of the, the the podcast today would be as you go through the process. You know, um, you know, we just want to understand the guardrails for both sides, and then ownership on each side is very important on on their ability to execute. I think that makes a very good uh, um, lending relationship for both parties. The bank's looking for you to uh, meet the requirements or covenants that they've outlined. And I think uh, equally as important as if you meet those covenant requirements and you're able to perform, you know, the, the lender has a responsibility to continue lending to you. So I think uh, that's the theme from this podcast. And I think we'll continue to be a podcast whenever, you know, we kind of move forward towards middle market, which we're starting to see a lot more activity, which is transactions above 20 million. Excellent. Good stuff. This is uh this is a really important topic, I think, for all of our audience. And, and if they get it right, um, it can really be something that they they reap the benefits of for a long, long time. So thanks so much for joining me on the show today. And suffice to say, I, I hope that everybody in the audience uh, is finding this type of material to be highly educational and informative. Um, if you do have questions about um, this subject matter or any other, you can always reach me directly at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. Once again, thanks to DeWalker, my partner, for joining me on the show today. He is a wealth of information and Really, banking is uh, has had been his life before we launched our last two startups, and and really his depth of knowledge and and behind the scenes look is an invaluable resource as it relates to a really mission critical component of getting a structure right 
in your business. So I hope you're getting a lot of value and, and uh, finding a lot of um, in, worthy information um, based on a lot of his guidance. Uh, suffice to say, there's much more to come in terms of banking and, and lending relationships and, and everything. But before we wrap things up uh, today, I, I wanted to take just a quick second because I've gotten some questions around um, some upcoming events that we've teased out and started leaking to the marketplace um, that are going to be happening in March. You heard me talk about the mergers, acquisitions, and affiliations masterclass this February 17th and 18th. We're doing a different masterclass around de novo execution um, that is going to be March 10th and 11th here in Charlotte. Uh, again, our master classes are a real deep dive into a thin subject matter, hyper-specific, super intense, small group format, about 10 people in a room and really going deep. And the de novo class on March 10th and 11th here in Charlotte uh, is going to be one that's hyper-specific to the de novo type of a strategy. I know most everybody's growing through acquisition, and that's why we built the mergers, acquisitions, and affiliations masterclass. But for those that are um, uh, using a de novo approach or a blended approach or both, for that matter, um, executing on the de novo strategy is is um, hyper-specific and obviously mission critical to, to their future success. And so we're going to go over a lot of things um, around uh, starting with the why around uh, de novos and executions. That's control over systems, it's processes, it's cultures, net equity break-even calculations, uh, consistency in assembling the team, uh, project management, all that kind of stuff um, at, a, at a pretty specific level to start the day together. Then we're gonna talk through site selection, selection and demographics. Um, relative to where you want to locate um, your uh, next locations and how to use uh, a, a, a demographic type of an approach to help you corroborate and find those locations. From there, we move into things like building the box. You know, a de novo strategy should not be a choose your own adventure and build a bunch of gourmet restaurants. Quite the contrary. It ought to be consistent, repeatable processes defining what the box is, how to lay it out, uh, and how to make it consistent from one opening to the next to the third. Then we get into things like lease terms and, and conditions. Man, everybody wants to, to negotiate the cost of equipment and the cost of funds when it comes to banking, and nobody seems to want to negotiate terms and conditions around the lease. And honestly, that can be mission critical to pulling this thing off. So we're going to spend a good bit of time around lease terms and negotiations. We're also going to talk about how to pick and negotiate an ideal contractor relationship. And then we touch on marketing metrics and the keys relative to psychographics, branding, and developing a marketing strategy. If you're going to have a de novo, you need to be able to drive patients and, and marketing is mission critical to that. So we'll spend some time around that with an industry expert um, in terms of marketing and metric, metrics, psychographics, branding, and the like. Uh, on the next day, we get into launch team and project management. That's pre and post opening. We get into financial modeling and that net equity break-even analysis, how to quantify what your numbers are in the first 12 months and how to hit that number. And then as we wrap up our session together, we're going to talk about building your plan for 2022 and beyond with wrap-ups and key takeaways. This is about as in-depth 
and analytically driven a, a de novo class as you're ever going to find. So if you like metrics and numbers and really getting into the nitty gritty details around execution on a de novo strategy, and, and that's your strategy for growth, this is the class for you. And again, it's the March 10th and 11th. Um, feel free to uh, hit me back if you'd like further information, and we'll link to some of the, the signups and the show notes. That is a really different uh, class than the large-scale pinnacle event that we're going to be hosting on March 30th and April 1st, through April 1st, excuse me, in South Florida, Fort Lauderdale. Um, and the theme around that pinnacle event is going to be scaling from clinician to CEO. And this is a larger format event, probably 50 to 100 people in attendance. Um, and, and it's going to be thematic, like I said, scaling from clinician to CEO. But it's a much broader range of topics than the de novo classes, suffice to say. So we're going to talk about, at the Pinnacle event in South Florida, going to talk about uh, building a group practice um, and the challenges that we see there. We're going to talk about what growth looks like. We'll touch on de novo versus acquisition um, in terms of the pace of, of growth and everything to be aware of. We'll talk about building your legal structure for scale. That's everything from governance and partnerships and operating agreements um, uh, to all, all sorts of the legal aspects of, of legal structures that facilitate your growth strategy. Uh, we'll talk about marketing and analytics once again, talk about a journey along a sell-side process for people who've done it successfully and probably get the input of a uh, private equity group. Um, and then the next day, we're going to have some heavy um, aspects of financial reporting. The first piece of it is daily metrics and, and KPIs. The second piece of it is, is legal structures and DSO reporting. So if you're going to build a group, your financial reporting is going to change, and you need to understand the what and the why behind that. We'll walk you through all of it. Talk about capital structures. That's borrowing and lending rate and term versus lower middle market versus corporate lending. We'll talk about equity on balance sheet, go through term sheets uh, from different banks as examples, uh, and then we'll wrap up with some equity structures. That's profits, interest, and, and restricted uh, membership unit or restricted stock unit um, with CPAs and cap table management, tax implications, and all that kind of fun stuff if you're going to do it. So, you know, this is really a uh, the, the Pinnacle event in South Florida is really a larger scale format for people who might not have ever been uh, to an event with us or, or sat through one of our presentations. And they're thinking about or in the early stages of building a group practice and they got some fundamentals that they need to get right. I think the Pinnacle event is an ideal um, opportunity there to, to spend some time with us in a fun venue, obviously, South Florida, Fort Lauderdale and uh, late March, early April is, and we're going to be on the water, which will be uh, pretty cool. And I think that'll be um, uh, a, a fun way for people to experience some of our presentations and some of our subject matter, but also walk away with a lot of details in terms of granularity uh, about what they need to do to get their their structures right if they are going to build a group practice. Significantly different than the de novo execution class or the mergers, acquisitions, and affiliation class. That's a much narrower. Um, subject matter at a much deeper level. So depending on what you're interested in and what your 
your preferences. Um, hopefully you can find uh, the right application uh, for you relative to where you are in your overall uh, growth for uh, 2022. I'd also like to take a quick second to, <laughs> to thank a couple of guys, uh, Mark Bennett and Adam Postel, who we've known for years um, that uh, sent DeWalker and I a really nice gift over the holidays um, with some uh, tongue-in-cheek ribbing along the way. Uh, and they even uh, put a nice note in with a, a stash of coffee. These guys took the time to print out a lot of uh, stickers that have the group practice logo and picture on it on top of a bunch of horrid K-cups. So now we have our very own group practice accelerator podcast K-cups that I feel like I'm going to be obligated to drink since Mark and Adam took the time to, uh, to put them together. Uh, really, um, <laughs> really uh, very humorous in terms of, of what they put down. They also shared some other um, uh, dark drinking liquid that might not be coffee, I'll, sh- I'll say. And we truly appreciate the, uh, uh, the kind gestures around that, Mark and Adam. And they did send along uh, some coffee from their favorite roaster in Farmingdale, New York, which is coffee without equal. So I'm, I'm looking forward to giving you all the verdict on how good this is uh, in the Mila coffee maker. Um, but suffice to say, Mark and Adam, um, we've known for a while, two great guys and, and really appreciate the good humor and the, and the good ribbing um, uh, and the kind gesture. But um, I hope that everyone got a lot out of today's podcast. Uh, as, as I do on all of ours, we work hard at our content. We appreciate the nice compliments that, that so many of you pass along our, our way. Uh, if you do have questions or you want to submit them to me directly, feel free to do so at parent at polarishealthcarepartners.com. And, and please do leave us a, a rating and a, a comment on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or any other where you get your, uh, your podcast. All of that helps in terms of SEO and helps in the show rankings and all that kind of good stuff. So um, we appreciate the, uh, uh, all the good feedback that y'all send our way. You can find out more about us on our website at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We will see you on the next episode.